Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the MindBeat podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. We are really excited to be with you today. We've got another great episode. Um, We are actually really privileged today to be joined by two of our Effective School Solutions clinical staff members working in schools every day. We've been wanting to do this for a while having a couple clinical staff members on really to kind of give us their perspective of what's going on on the front lines of the, you know, mental, mental health uh, landscape kind of within, within schools. So uh, Deandra Kaufman and Jen Baum are two just really, really amazing, inspiring clinicians. And I know they'll have a lot of great insights to share, whether you're an educator, whether you're a parent, I think they're going to have a lot of really good information. Yeah. I'm looking forward to speaking with them both. So how are you today, Duncan? I'm doing well, thanks. Um, spring is coming. Spring is here. So spring is what, what are your what are your favorite springtime activities like? Well, I oh gosh, I've told you I'm a walker. I love to just take walks and get some sun. Just anything outdoor that's active, I like in the spring. But what I'm excited about this spring is, you know, I have a freshman in college. He's coming home for spring break, so that's he'll fantastic. be home this weekend. I'm going to go pick him up. On Friday from school. No, and we, no like uh, Fort Lauderdale. Like, well, he uh, is actually. He is, he's doing that as well. He's going to be home for just about three days before he heads to Boca Raton with his friends. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So he's going to do that. I but thought you were going to say three hours. He's going to come home for three hours and then <laughs> no, immediately get on a he'll plane. He'll be home for three days and he'll be in Florida and come home. How do you, how do you feel uh, about that? Are you, are you, you, you feel, you feel good about him going down to like uh, the epicenter of uh, Spring Break USA? That is the epicenter, isn't it? Gosh, gosh, yeah. Well, I trust him completely. He is a kid that makes excellent decisions. He's, um, you know, I don't, I trust him 100%. I just worry about the world, you know, sometimes and other people's decisions or who he might be with and what they're doing. But, um, but no, I generally, he also makes good choices and friends as well. So I, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but that part of that worrier mom and me is like, I please. Let everything be okay. Let just let his travel be okay. You know, just let those things go smoothly. Um, but yeah, no, I'm excited for him, and I'm looking forward to having him home for just That's a great. couple of days anyway. Lane, where did you uh, in, in college? Did you have any good spring break stories? Any like what was the best place you went to, or did you travel for spring break? I did, I did. And if my parents are listening, um, I think my dad knows this now. But yeah, I was supposed to be in Florida by uh, between. I think it's my at this the spring break of my freshman year. They really went to Mexico, and I didn't tell them. Now I was 18, but yeah, I definitely was not honest about where I was going on spring break. I had a great time though. Mexico was awesome at 18, or maybe I was 19 by then. Um, yeah, I think every. Every year I went, I went somewhere. I went to Miami the following year. I went to the Bahamas and then I went back to Cancun my senior year. So every year I found somewhere to go. Um, I think that's maybe why I worry about my son because I know I had a sure, very good right, time. Right, on right. <laughs> but he's not the same kind of kid as me. He's much more level-headed than I was at that age. I'm very happy to say. <laughs> Got it. How about you? Did you do a lot of spring breaking? Yeah, never, never, never was a huge spring breaker. I went to, I think I went to Myrtle Beach one okay. year. I went to school in North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach not not a not a great spring break location. I feel no, like it was a, yeah, it was a little bit, little bit a 
little bit depressing. Now this is like depressing. Thir- this is like thirty years ago. So okay. maybe maybe Myrtle Beach. If we've got any Myrtle Beach listeners, kind I of thought on Myrtle Beach. Like I remember today. going as a little kid. I, I don't remember, but I just remember it being like even a bigger Ocean City, Maryland. Like a lot more activities and things going on. Is that not? That, that was again. Now the the, uh, the the memories have gotten hazy over the past like three decades. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it just was not. It was not kind of like uh, it, whatever the opposite of the epicenter is. That's mm-hmm. what Myrtle it's... Beach. That's what Myrtle <laughs> Beach was. The 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 anti epicenter of, of spring break. Just a little bit, a uh-huh. little bit quiet, a little bit sleepy. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. One time I was in grad school and I actually mm-hmm. got called for jury duty the mm-hmm. week of uh, spring break, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, jury duty. <laughs> not even, not even as a uh, actual juror, as an alternate. So I, uh-huh. uh, that mean, meant I had to sit through the five day trial and not even really be involved. And then, yeah. and then I got dismissed before the deliberations, which mm-hmm. was like very unsatisfying. Because I feel like if you're going to sit there for the for the trial, yeah. you want to have a voice in kind of the proceedings, and yeah. you, know, you formed kind of viewpoints and opinions mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't to be. I have a little funny story about that. This was in my adult life. It wasn't spring break, but I was getting ready to go on vacation in, I think, back to Mexico, another place. I think we're going to Cozumel. And uh, I got called jury duty like two weeks before the trip. And I was so scared that this trial would go on longer than, you know, before, my, you know, we would extend past my trip. So I tried everything in the world not to be selected. I was like, I think I know this guy. I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, I tried everything and that, I ended up being the foreman of the daggone trial. It was like a civil suit. Uh, it worked out. It was it lasted about a week. We came up with a, a verdict or it wrapped up and, and I was able to go, but I was sweating bullets the whole You're time. Concerned. Like, let's yeah. go. Yeah. Let's yeah. get yeah. this going. No recess. The old yeah. 10 minute deliberation. Let's, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. right. I'm sure there's someone listening to this podcast who is kind of like, oh my God. I, you First know, world problems. Yeah, yeah. No, Lane, Lane is, you know, <laughs> kind of a. Uh, Completely like, you know, capitulating on her civil duty. And, uh, no, but you, you served on the jury. I did serve. You served on the jury. There you I go. did so, serve. Um, let's jump into our top three, Lane. Let's do it. All right. So uh, our top three today is inspired by um, a PBS article called uh, There's a Mental Health Crisis Among Teen Girls. Here are some ways to support them. Um, uh, back in February, there was a study that came out from the CDC that had some really alarming statistics with respect to mental health of young people in general, but with a special focus on teenage girls. And I don't have the uh, data and statistics here in front of me, but I think 36% of teenage girls have expressed kind of a, a you know a hopelessness and, and some level of depression kind of in the years following the pandemic. Uh, also, really alarming statistics about the high rates of suicidal ideation and suicidality um, with young people, but teenage girls in particular. So, um, so the top top three today is top three ways to support the mental health of teenage girls. And some of these items come from this PBS article that I just referenced, which we will you know link to on the uh, the Mindbeat uh, description and uh, on the on the ESS website. So the three things, uh, there are about six things that are highlighted. The three that I picked out, number one was more emphasis on social support. This article really talks about the fact that the pandemic has been isolating and that young people, you know, a, a way to manage stress and anxiety is having, is having a support system. And part of having a support system means having individuals that you can converse with, that you can dialogue with, that you can exchange ideas with. And the reality is that too few of our young people have that. And that's a combination of the isolation from the pandemic, but also I think the isolation that comes along with social media and the fact that social media does result in relationships that are sometimes more surface than they are kind of authentic. So more emphasis on social support. The second one is showcasing achievements versus appearance. One of the Mm -hmm. things the article talks about is the, um, 
research that, that's coming out with respect to uh, Instagram and Facebook and other social media platforms and the really negative impact it has on the body image of young people mm -hmm. and, and teenage girls in, in particular. So uh, this article has uh, a lot of really good ideas about ways to really showcase uh, achievements of individuals versus kind of their appearance. And I think that's kind of a good mindset and a good mentality we should definitely keep in mind. And then the, the third thing is really just kind of managing social media. Of course, mm -hmm. social media is a tool. And like any tool, it can be used for good or for ill. It can be used appropriately or it could be kind of overused. But this is a big challenge and one that I go through kind of with my teenage girls right now is just trying to set reasonable boundaries and get adherence to those boundaries. And and I think what, what my wife and I are finding is when you when you kind of, you know, um, you know, set the boundary too low, if if you're setting that screen time limit from, you know, kind of, you know, an hour and a half down to kind of an hour, you will hear about it from your kids. And there's definitely like a lot of like like negotiation that mm -hmm. that takes place kind of as a, as as part of that. And so, you know, I, I think for a parent, what that tells me is that we want to meet our kids where they are and kind of meet them halfway. But it also shows kind of the insidious effect that social media has you know, kind of on our young people, because when a young person reacts that strongly to kind of like their screen time going down by 20 minutes a day, that, that tells me that maybe like something's a little bit, yeah. you know, wrong with respect to the uh, impact that this is having kind of on the teenage, on the teenage brain. Well, it's so interesting because really social media is not that old, right? I mean, I think I got my first iPhone in 2009 and we didn't have a ton of apps maybe till 2010, maybe I'm guessing. Well, I guess Facebook was earlier than that. Maybe the Await or something like that. I don't know. But it's still really, you know, young. And I, our previous generations never dealt with this in parenting. So, you know, we're really the, this first group to even deal with social media. It's really hard to navigate, I think, as a parent. And I don't think because it's so new, I don't think we really have all the research in about how detrimental it really is. I think we're until we get like another 10 years out and really see how it's impacting their adult lives as well. I think it'll be really interesting. I think we have just scratched the surface in the research. And my concern is that we're going to look back in like 10 years when there's a lot more research out there. We're going to be like, what? Yeah. What what did we do to the yeah. brains of our kids, right? Because so. we're different, isn't you know, in that kind of millennial or Gen X generation, we grew up completely analog. You know, I've, I'm always seeing on social media these little fun memes about remember back in the day, and they showed like a the old school computer with the two big uh, uh, speakers on the side, and it's dialing up AOL, and you've got your Game Boy out. It was like all the old school technology. Um, so you know, we grew up analog, and now we're in this very digital adult life. And it's hard to navigate even for adults. Yeah, I, I'm definitely yeah. addicted to my phone. I'm, I'm My name's Lane. I'm addicted to my phone. I'm, I'm working on it. So how is that affecting growing minds? Sure. It'll be really interesting. Yeah, to see. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's right. Yeah. So why don't we get into our mm -hmm. in the news for today, Lane? Okay, great segue because the um, the article I read. Is it a surprising remedy for teens and mental health crisis? <laughs> you got yeah. it. That's the title. So what I really appreciate about it was that the they well first they talked about how a student was having a uh, they were describing her having a a, a panic attack essentially, and uh, it was really cool that her friends were able to support her through that panic attack. And then the article kind of went through. You know, they're telling a story in the beginning, and they're saying that they were able to support her because they had all recently had a youth mental health first aid training for students. So this immediately got my ear because we teach that at ESS. We, we give that training to faculty at schools or educators in schools as well as parents. So for those um, who don't know youth 
mental health first aid is akin to like CPR training, but for mental health. So just like CPR, you don't take the training and now you're expected to provide all kinds of intensive medical care, but it's just to give you a, an understanding of things that you can do out in the world when, when someone's struggling, whether that be, you know, they, you know, I don't know, having a heart attack or something and you've got to get the paddles out. Well, if you're seeing someone with a panic attack, how can I support them? If you're seeing someone who is going through some type of mental health crisis, an acute moment, how can I support them or get them the, the help they need? So it's a wonderful training. I totally support it. Um, what's really nice is that most of our work is adult facing, you know, giving this training to parents and educators to support kids. But I love that they're giving the training directly to students. I think the more mental health literacy we have um, for students, it does destigmatize it for them. It normalizes that these things happen and we got to deal with it and, and how to how how to what the appropriate way to deal with my with your mental health issues are, um, as well as. Uh, you know, just, just toolkits, just toolkits, um, deeper understanding, recognizing it in our friends and family as well. And that's something that we didn't get in our, in previous generations. So I love that we're having these conversations and normalizing it in school. So appreciate the article. Big up to youth mental health first aid. And um, then I think they have teen mental health first aid, right? Which is kind of a peer to peer type of version of the they youth do. mental health first aid curriculum. So really they great do. stuff. And this is in the Heckinger report. And we will link to this kind of in the might be description and up on the, the website. So thanks for uh, giving us an overview, Lane. Absolutely. All right. Well, Lane, let's get right into our, our guest for today. I am uh, thrilled uh, uh, with the two individuals that we have joining us today. We've been wanting to do this for a while, which is have mm -hmm. some members of the ESS clinical team uh, join join in. Um, you know, as, as we've talked about before on this podcast, uh, ESS has about, you know, 500 plus uh, amazing clinical staff members working out in schools, supporting students each and every day. Uh, and we thought it would be great just to bring on a couple of our clinical staff members and have a chance to hear uh, from, from, from them. So really excited today to have uh, Deandra Kaufman and uh, uh, Jennifer Baum with us. I'll, I'll just do quick bios for each of them and really looking forward to getting into our, our conversation. So uh, Deandra is a licensed clinical social worker who's been working for uh, Effective School Solutions, ESS, for four years. She's also an advanced trainer in the Nurtured Heart uh, approach. I, I think you may have actually been in the same training group with her, Elaine, uh, I, at some we point. Were, uh, we yeah, were, we yeah. were, yes. Um, we go and, way back. There you go. And uh, Deandra has actually also written a curriculum to teach children and teens about Nurtured Heart, uh, and she's actually implementing that in, in Hillsborough right now. Uh, Jennifer Baum is the clinical project manager for ESS. She has been practicing as a uh, licensed clinical social worker for over 12 years and recently celebrated seven years with Effective School Solutions. Jen is one of our longest tenured uh, uh, staff members. She has experience working in adult and adolescent inpatient hospital units, partial hospital programs and residential treatment, and her specific areas of clinical expertise include eating disorders and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. So, Deandra and Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. I know how busy your your, your days are, and just uh, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, thank you. We're thank so you for happy. having us. Thank yeah. you. Um, again, thank you for coming. And I just wanted to ask you both, like, how did you guys get into the the field of mental health in the first place? Uh, uh, you know, tell our listeners what the trajectory of your careers were or are. <laughs> I can go first. Yeah, uh, sure. So um, I actually started off in undergrad as a criminal justice major and psychology minor. And um, I was lucky enough to have an internship experience during my undergrad that kind of opened up my eyes to the world of mental health. Um, and I did some um, 
clinical therapy in probation and parole within Yale New Haven um, unit. And so that kind of set off my path and I just kind of connected with the mental health world. And from there, I decided to pursue social work and got very lucky with having some fantastic clinical internships that taught me a lot um, and gave me some really good, um, you know, job experience, intern experience to be able to figure out where I go next in life, which took me to eating disorders treatment. Um, and then from there, to working in residential treatment centers throughout the state of New Jersey. And then I wound up at ESS and uh, here for the long haul. So, you know, I, I like to say I kind of got lucky that I feel like mental health always kind of resonated with me. Um, I just needed to find that particular direction. So cool. that's the short of it. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, I would say for myself, I, like I said, I, I went to Hillsborough high school um, and I was a classified student and I remember you know, seeing the helpers in the school, the nurturers, right? The social workers and the counselors and seeing the difference they made for kids and, and how much kids like myself sometimes needed someone to be the voice for us to help us find our own voice. And that was what propelled me into knowing I want to do something in this field. Um, I went to East Stroudsburg for my undergrad in psychology. And ironically, I grew up in Hillsborough. I got a job at Carrier Clinic on their residential unit at the age of 18. Um, and I worked there five years all throughout college and grad school, did my internship there on the residential unit as a clinician, um, then went to another residential placement working as a clinician for multiple years. Um, and it just propelled me into this, this extreme passion to help those, especially children and youth who often feel they don't have control to feel that they do have that power. And sometimes we just have to shine a light on it. Um, so I think my experiences, even from being a teen and then getting to work at carrier clinic, which is a, you know, a hospitalization unit, but also a residential at such a young age, just really, really gave me that fire that, that lit me up and gave me that, that energy that we all need as uh, social workers and counselors. Yeah. Uh, what a great, what a great, great story from both of you about how you got into the, into the field. Uh, Deandra, for, for those who might not be familiar with effective school solutions and the kind of work that, that we do clinically kind of in schools, can you describe a little bit kind of what that works look, work looks like? And then Jen, I'll turn it over to you after that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, effective school solutions, when I heard about, you know, what ESS does before I came here, I was blown away. But when I actually came and I started to learn the work, um, it, it, I'm a lifer as well, like Jen. So what ESS does is they put, you know, therapeutic teams, clinicians in schools that provide a safe place, a therapeutic setting for students who might otherwise need to go out of district or who may otherwise not have the resources in their school or as many of the resources to be able to be successful, not only academically, but personally and emotionally. Um, so the thing that I've always loved about what ESS does is that we get to work with students that maybe otherwise might be misunderstood or otherwise might fall under the the grain because they don't necessarily have the ability to share what might be going on at home or what might be going on for them. And we get to help to connect with administrators, teachers, and really help to make sure that our students are heard, um, their needs are understood, and also be a support system for the teachers and the administrators we work with. Um, so I think my favorite thing is just that it's not just a one-person team. You are working with so many people in the school, 
And while your school might have, you know, two people on your team, or you might be a one person school, we get the beautiful job of getting to form these great relationships with principals, vice principals, you know, um, child study team, you know, school counseling departments, and really work together to make sure that our students have everything they need. Uh, well, well put, DeAndra. Mm-hmm. Jen, anything you'd like, to, you'd like to add to that? Um, I think a large part of what we do is also connecting with the families as well and really being a huge support to the families. Um, There are so many aspects of the mental health world as well as the school-based educational world that the families are not sure how to navigate. Um, And ESS acts as, um, you know, kind of being able to bridge the gap between what the families know, what the families are unsure of, being able to link them to all the right places, whether it's within the community for mental health purposes or within the school so that the students are getting their educational needs met um, in conjunction with their mental health needs. And I know that the families are typically very appreciative of having our services and the ability to have an advocate within the district. Got it. Thanks. Thanks to both of you. So speaking really broadly, what are the kinds of mental health challenges that, you know, our students are experiencing right now in schools? What are you seeing most? I would say whether it's ESS students, it's students yeah. in general, in general right now, right. I think, I think kind of across, across kind of all, you know, locations, grade levels, I think, you know, lots of documentation that kids are in crisis right now. Uh, what, what are you guys observing with the broader student population? Yeah, I, I mean, I know in my school, one of the biggest things we're observing is we're seeing a lot of students coming up from the middle school um, or just students in general that went through the pandemic, right, went through remote learning and are really struggling significantly with increased mental health needs now more than ever because they had this period of time where life as they knew it and normal was completely interrupted. And it did leave such a lasting impact of increased anxiety Um, you know, difficulties with focusing once they're back in the classroom because of the fact that a lot of our students were home, you know, not turning on a camera and, you know, just listening to a class lecture. Um, So I know with my school district right now, that's become a really big issue. We're seeing more and more kids considering withdrawing and pursuing a GED. Um, We're seeing more and more kids who are going to partial hospitalization programs, IOP programs, needing more than what we noticed they needed before the pandemic. Um, so creating a new sense of normalcy where we're putting a spotlight on these growing mental health needs that have come out of the pandemic, just from, for what I've seen in my school specifically, has been extremely crucial. Thanks. Yeah, though, though totally not widespread. Um, interestingly, we've seen throughout the entire Sayreville district an increase in students diagnosed with selective mutism. Um, and a lot of them have been elementary aged. Um, and I think similarly to what Deandra's point is that a lot of those students may have not had, um, you know, as much school exposure, um, you know, at, during the pandemic time frame. And so for some of them, this is their first time in a public education setting um, or anxiety that may have been underlining. Um, and now it's starting to manifest itself in different ways. Um, so that is certainly a new trend that has not been seen over my years here before, but has, you know, taken a pretty significant rise within this past school year. Um, also, I would say there's a, been a pretty significant rise in eating disorders and, um, difficult relationships with food that have required, um, 
additional referrals and intervention on our part. And again, some of those anxiety-based behaviors manifesting themselves in ways that historically we may not have seen them. Got it. Got it. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. So, I mean, Jen and Deandra, both of you have been, I think, in the field for long enough that you've seen, I'm sure, kind of a progression and you've got some perspective about how things have changed with, uh, you know, both the acuity of challenges that students are experiencing, but also kind of the role of schools. Maybe we could talk a little bit about both of those. I mean, when you look right now at what you just described with kind of the challenges that students are experiencing, how does that compare versus like five years ago? And, and what is the trajectory been? Do you feel like kind of challenges are getting, um, I think it's pretty clearly documented that a lot of mental health challenges have gotten worse throughout the pandemic. What do you see, what have you seen in like the last 12 months, for example, do you, do you think things are kind of, you know, you know, better than, worse than, about the same than a year ago for like the broader, you know, student population that, that uh, you're seeing kind of in your schools? I would say that there's higher acuity throughout the course of this year. I know a part of my role as the crisis screener, the numbers of crisis screenings throughout the middle school and the high school have significantly increased this school year. Um, and you know that could be in part due to the increased mental health needs of our students. It could also be in part to the fact that we are now, I think as a culture and a climate, more sensitive and in tune and aware of mental health needs and therefore having earlier intervention, maybe taking things a little bit more seriously that were once brushed under the rug. Um, but, you know, as far as the students that we are currently working with from an ESS perspective, and even throughout the district, there just appears to be an overall higher acuity, needing additional referrals for higher levels of care, um, and just students that are struggling with, with more significant depression and anxiety and having difficulty coping with that. Um, it seems like the dist distress tolerance has decreased a bit from where it once was. Got it. Deandra, how about you? Yeah, it's, it's, I love that you said that, um, Jen, because I was going to say the same thing about distress tolerance. We've seen over the last 12 months, the distress tolerance has become something that's been a major theme across the board with students who are struggling significantly to cope with stressors that prior to the pandemic, um, would have been able to be managed, um, with maybe less resources or a less higher level of therapeutic care. Another thing that we've definitely seen in the last 12 months is, is the theme of trauma informed care and how, you know, we have these students and these staff members who went through a pandemic, you know, and a lot of us were impacted in a lot of different ways. We have a lot of students across our school that had family members who passed away from COVID, um, you know, parents and, and guardians. And so their entire, you know, world has changed and then they return to school with this expectation of being in a classroom and having to focus and doing this work. And it almost seems unimaginable. So I think that we're having to consider a lot more things than just how do we get them to sit in a classroom and focus on the material? Because now you have the trauma that the pandemic has brought for not only our students, but our, our families, our teachers, everyone we're partnering with. That's a great segue. You know, earlier you emphasized the collaboration uh, between all of the different educators and staff, administrators in your building, other mental health um, professionals in the building. So what would you say the ideal partnership between districts and mental health providers look like? would look like? 
I would say for, for me, ultimately, I think it's a, an open understanding of we as the mental health providers in the school, we're not, you know, the top academic specialists, right? And we're always learning and growing. I think it's just a willingness to be open and to, to be a sponge and to be willing to learn things. Because what I've found is from when I started with ESS to now, my school and the way things are working is totally different because so much change has taken place. So I think it's being willing to be open and, and recognize that we can always learn and grow from each other, just like with our partners in the school. Um, you know, we're, we're always growing and they're always growing in their ability to understand what we do in ESS. Um, we've had a lot this year. We've had our administration asking, you know, can we see what you guys do with a high risk assessment? We'd like some information about that because maybe that's something that we can incorporate into our school and, and grow that as a new norm, you know, since the pandemic has brought a heightened level of crisis situations. So I think it's just being open and, and being willing to understand that we can learn from each other and that we're constantly growing. But as long as we're a team and we're collaborating and communicating, um, we're going to have the student's best interest and the family's best interest at heart. Jen, anything you'd like to add to that? I was going to say along the same lines, just being open with one another, having open communication, open respect, and really having that openness and willingness to learn from each other and um, educate one another, because we are certainly not the academic experts. And, you know, the district looks at us oftentimes as, you know, the mental health professionals in the building who can help guide their policies and their practice and, keep their students um, who are struggling with their mental health safe and within the district. And just being able to learn from one another is invaluable. Yeah, I love that idea of like kind of working from the inside out to really help districts you know, look at their best practices and implement best practices when it comes to, to school-based mental health. So it sounds like both of you are, are kind of really observing that and are a big part of that in the, in the districts that you're, that you're a part of. Absolutely. So what, what advice would you give to teachers when it comes to identifying mental health warning signs and supporting students in need? So if there are teachers listening to this podcast, what are, what are a couple of uh, uh, kind of you know, tips that, that teachers uh, you know, who, who are not trained as mental health professionals largely should and can kind of remember when they're going through their day-to-day -day interactions with students? I would say that and a really important thing for teachers to understand and recognize is that behavior is a form of communication and that sometimes we can look at the behaviors of children and label them in certain ways. Um, and then without further investigation or referral to a school counselor or their child study team case manager and really just try to manage the behavior in the classroom when sometimes that's the way that the children are trying to express themselves and advocate for themselves and and cry out for that help that's that they may not be receiving. Um, so behavior is a language and it's a form of communication. And when teachers can look at it through that lens, then they can be part of that internal system of getting the students the help they need. And again, kind of going back to that early intervention, why wait until that child has had five discipline referrals or until that child has completely withdrawn in class. Let's intervene early, send them to whoever is the appropriate person in the classroom so that we can get them the support that they need as soon as they, they can receive it. Gotcha. DeAndre? Yeah, I, I would, and I love that. I would also add, 
you know, being mindful of looking at every student and instead of, you know, bunching them together, every student is, is unique in their own ways and has their own needs. And, you know, how one student might display anxiety in the classroom might be very different than another student. Um, just like what, you know, works for one student when it comes to setting limits and setting boundaries in the classroom might not work for another student. Um, so just being mindful of that and, and recognizing that, you know, if a student has a hard time with something that the rest of the class might not struggle with, um, example, you know, if, if you have a rule of putting your phone, the phones up, you know, we have a lot of teachers that have little cubbies and you have to put your phone away. Um, and there might be that one student in the class who really has a strong emotional reaction, recognizing that there might be more to that than just, um, I don't want to put my phone away. Sometimes it's, you know, I, I have a sick parent at home and, you know, I need to keep my phone on me because I'm terrified of getting a text or a call. Something has gone wrong. This is an extraordinary example, but just recognizing that every child is different and not being afraid to, you know, form that relationship by meeting them where they're at. Some kids aren't going to be as forthcoming and come right in and say, you know, I'm having a terrible day because my mom yelled at me this morning because I woke up late and I just don't want to be here. Some kids show that, like Jen said, through their behavior and that's how they communicate that. So recognizing meeting them where they're at with not engaging in power struggles, um, for example, the back and forth um, and, and, and trying to take some time to check in with them privately. I've had a lot of students share with us in our program that they get extreme anxiety being called out in front of the classroom. So sometimes taking that one example of, of not calling students out in front of the class, um, if they've d demonstrated that anxiety and being able to speak with them privately can make all the difference between them finishing the class positively or, you know, them disengaging and having a behavioral reaction. Sure. Got it. Got it. You are speaking to the choir. I really enjoyed both of your answers. You know, we do a lot of work with with teachers, and that's very much the message we're trying to communicate, that usually these behaviors are the result of unmet needs. So thank you uh, for those responses. I'd like to ask you the same question, but geared towards parents. I think so many parents would like to support the mental health of their of their children, but really just don't know where to begin. What can they do at home? What are some ways that parents can support the, the mental health of their children? And also recognizing any early warning signs. Yeah, so I I am a, a huge proponent of the nurture heart approach. Um, and one of the things that I like to talk to our families about, we do parent support groups and we do family sessions, is that at the end of the day, as a parent, you can't nurture your child's heart if you're not nurturing your own. So I actually truly and strongly passionately believe that as a parent, it's it's checking in with yourself constantly and making sure that your bowl of energy is filled so that when you come home, maybe from a long day at work, you're able to still have those conversations with your child if they've had a rough day and be able to give them and be present for them. Um, so I think that's a really good start. I always like to refer to when you're on an airplane and they tell you, you know, if you're sitting with your child, if the oxygen masks fall down you have to put yours on first before you put your child on because if if you become unconscious there's nothing you can do to help your child i think the same thing goes for our parents you know if you're nurturing your heart you know you're checking in with yourself you're taking care of you know that bowl of energy then you're able to be more present for your child um i, I also truly believe that having open conversations where instead of you know kind of hiding from the difficult conversations related to what's going on in school what's going on with peers, 
Um, having conversations that are less energized and are more focused on connection can be a great way to really, really talk about what's going on. Because a lot of times our kids come to school, they have a million things happen with their friends, with, you know, bullies, with boyfriends, girlfriends, teachers, and they go home and they might not say a word about it for multiple reasons. So just meeting your child where they're at and being able to be present in those conversations and, and talk about those difficult things is very helpful. Deandra, would you just share with our listeners really quick what Nurture Heart Approach is? You referenced it a few times. We have talked about it. If we have some really faithful listeners, they have heard about it when we uh, talked to Dr. Elizabeth Sylvester, who you may know also from Nurture Heart Approach. Sure. We had her on. She's got a great new book with uh, Dr. Kat Schur that involves Nurture Heart Approach and emotional regulation. And it's I highly recommend it. But can you just share for our listeners who maybe didn't hear that episode, what is Nurtured Heart Approach? that you were referencing. Absolutely. So the Nurture Heart Approach is an amazing set of strategies and techniques that really help everyone, but especially parents with strengthening their relationships with their children by truly, truly reserving your energy for only the positives, right? So recognizing the baby steps, instead of recognizing the whole scene, recognizing each moment frame by frame and what's going right. And also in turn, reserving your energy for the negativity. Um, so, so this really for a parent would look like being able to recognize what's going right for your child when things are positive, even if you have to create a moment of greatness yourself and not giving those big energetic reactions when there's a negative situation with your child. Um, and these strategies have helped parents honestly across the country, um, not only deal with, you know, not only deal with conflict and tension with their children, but be able to have more positive, meaningful relationships with their children, with spouses. Um, I use it with my husband and it works great. So, um, it nurses everybody. There's the NHA relationship yes. book now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm also a, yes. an instructor as well. or an advanced trainer as well. So yeah. Jen, did you want to share your best advice for parents as well for, you know, supporting sure. their, uh, their child's mom? Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think creating a safe space within the home is invaluable for that open communication and that ability for um, mutual trust to exist. So if I, I always advise our families, if, you know, if your children feel as though they can come to you for anything, good, bad, indifferent, then you are in the space to be the ultimate source of advocacy and protection for them. Um, and, you know, acknowledging as a parent uh, that we are ourselves human and, you know, there are going to be moments where we are imperfect and owning that and taking accountability for that and modeling that to our children to be able to say, I probably could have handled that situation differently. And I'm sorry, um, because our children deserve an apology for our sometimes imperfect behavior, just as much as we request and, and you know, deserve the apology from them when they're not perfect, because the reality is no one is. Um so, you know, being able to model exactly what we are looking for our kids is a really important tool um, and, and just promotes all of those skills um, and reciprocity. So Jen and Deandra, just, I, I know we're getting short on time. So a couple of, of kind of wrap up, wrap up questions. I mean, one is, you know, when you look at just the field of school-based mental health, if there was one kind of national recommendation that you would have for all school districts when it comes to kind of improving their mental health continuum that they're putting in place for their young people, what would that, what would that recommendation be? 
Oh, sorry, Jen. I know. Um, so for me, I would say definitely, I think for teachers and staff, I think it's like ongoing education and training, not only related to, um, you know, certain topics of mental health, like suicidal ideation and recognizing it and, you know, anxiety, depression, social, emotional. Um, I think also, you know, things such as like the nurtured heart approach and understanding how to have a more fulfilled experience in the classroom when we have things going on as well. Um, so for the teachers, I would say just ongoing mental health training, um, also the ability to have check-ins related to the classroom and, and the triggers that exist in the classroom, because I think more than ever, um, since the pandemic, there's a lot of triggers that come up in the classrooms that occur for our teachers as well that we aren't always as aware of. Um, I think for the students in the school, having programs and groups and and um, even clubs that promote mental health, promote openness about mental health, getting rid of that stigma for our students, whether they're, you know, young or or older, that talking about mental health, expressing your needs, it's no longer something to be ashamed of. And it is now something to talk about with pride because it's a sign of, of self-advocacy and it's a sign of courage and resilience. Um, so I think having an avenue for, you know, the staff to be able to keep learning and keep growing, but also be able to talk about these things when it comes to their own personal experiences in the school. Um, but also having an avenue for the children and the students to empower themselves to talk openly, to spread awareness about mental health, to do projects within the school, to be able to help other students who maybe don't have as much access to these resources to learn about mental health as well. Thanks, Yadra. Jen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I obviously would agree with all of that. Um, I think teacher education and even administration education on just best practice, how to, Duncan, like you said, how to implement um, or maybe modify some, some protocols and procedures that maybe have been a bit outdated, right? Because the mental health field is always changing and improving and morphing um, and being able to have the school district's policies and procedures kind of um, morph alongside of what we develop and what we implement is great. Um, awareness for the children, like I know our district um, throughout at least the middle school and the high school often do a mental health fair and they rotate in through their gym periods. Um, that has been such a great experience for ESS to be a part of because we just see the kids who really want to engage in these conversations and learn and take the tools that are provided by all the different participants in there. So really just normalizing mental health for every single individual who is in this building and normalizing that receiving support and help is absolutely okay and destigmatizing all of that. Got it. Got it. Thanks, Jen. So our final question we like to ask to all of our guests, you know, about your mental health best practices. What's in your mental health toolkit? How do you reset yourself to use our nurture heart language? Uh, you know, yoga, breathing, running. What do you like to do to support your own mental we health? We know it's joining in on podcasts and having conversations <laughs> like this, but other other than that. I would say, so it's interesting you asked that because when I was earlier in my career, I put no emphasis on, men, on mental health or self-care. You know, um, it was very normalized, just hustle, work hard, overwork, right? And as I've gotten older, um, I've recognized that there is pride to be had in practicing self-care and in knowing when you need to take that day of PTO because you are just at your limit and you need a reset. Um, so for myself, it's it's really just 
not allowing myself to feel guilt when I need to practice self-care um, might sound funny. I love true crime. So for me, it's my true crime podcast. Uh, I love them. I listen to them on my way to work. So I just cl- totally clear my mind um, and play detective <laughs> and then on my way home. Um, and then I have a sweet dog at home with my husband that uh, when I'm not at work, taking walks, getting exercise, getting sunlight, super helpful. That's great. What kind of dog do you have, Deandra? She's an Aussie Shepherd, a uh, Golden Retriever mix, and she probably could use ESS. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's going to be our next expansion area, pet mental health, right? So uh, I, I actually had an um, administrator at my school last week say to me, could you guys do ESS for dogs? Because my dog really needs it. I was like, I'll, I'll find out. Yeah, my, my, my dog got on the Prozac train about two or three months ago. And it makes a, <laughs> makes a, makes a massive difference, actually. My so cat it's, uh, Prozac. Dog is very, yeah. very, uh, it's definitely mellowed out quite a bit. So, uh, my cat became so affectionate yeah, after yeah. she got on Prozac. She was so always very, really very, skittish. Yeah, very yeah, cuddly. No, she's, and, uh, yeah, she's, yeah. she so, hangs out now. Jen, how about, I how about, how about you, Jen? <laughs> Um, For me, really trying to separate the work and family life. I have a six-year-old at home and um, a soon-to-be baby. So trying to um, really, you know, turn off that work mode, which is very difficult for me, and be a full-time mom when I am at home and a full-time employee when I'm at work, um, which is a lot easier said than done, especially in this field, when I think we all truly care about what we do and it's hard to not care after 4 p.m. Um, it's not a switch that's easily able to be flipped. Um, but I think with time and practice and really like seeing the importance of it and how, you know, how important it is for me to be present for my son and my family, that certainly helped. And then really just having a great support system of friends and family and knowing when it's time to tap into them to kind of fill my bucket when I just don't have the ability to fill it up in that moment has also been invaluable because, you know, this is a tough field. And if you don't, like DeAndre said, if you don't take care of yourself, then we can't, we can't take care of others either. So. No, that's great. Thanks to both of you for the, for the responses there and just appreciate both of you and you taking the time today. I know how busy the life of a ESS clinician is on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, week-to-week basis. So uh, just thanks to both of you for the amazing work that you're doing on on behalf of kids and uh, uh, for taking time out of your busy days. Of course. Thank, thank you, you so much for having us. Having so good us. to see you both. Anytime. Thank you. Great. Lane, what, uh, what inspired you today or this week rather? This week. Or today. So, uh, well, your, your choice. Uh, well, I'll say this past weekend, I am traditional. I think it's actually more than the weekend. It's a trend being this whole winter that I am starting to become a winter beach person. I I love the beach. I'm all about summer beaching. I you know one of the things I love about living in the Philadelphia area is I'm only an hour from the closest beach. Uh, lots of day trips. Try to stay as often as I can. It's very therapeutic for me. But I was really only utilizing the beach maybe the end of May, June through early, mid-September. Uh, I can go later into September now that I don't have a, a child at home. Um, but I was really missing out, it turns out, that winter beaching is great. Just getting that sunlight on my face if it's a nice day, um, you know, once you bundle up and the water still has all the same therapeutic qualities that it does in the summer. It feels great just to be near water, just to go to a restaurant and sit by water, or eat near water. Uh, love it. So I'm inspired now to take advantage of wintertime beaching. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So yeah, I was really inspired by our time today with uh, Jen and DeAndra, right? Mm-hmm. So I just feel really mm-hmm. privileged every day to be able to work with just such uh, amazing mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. I, I think the commitment 
uh, kind of impassioned that they really kind of demonstrated for the work that they're doing on behalf of kids, I think yeah. was, was just awesome. So that was we my uh, daily people. inspiration. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that concludes another episode of, of Mindbeat. Uh, Lane, great to see you as you always. As well. um, well. uh, again, for uh, everyone listening, please share Mindbeat with your friends, like, subscribe, share, leave us comments. Uh, uh, I keep uh, talking about that uh, the promised mailbag, and uh, we are definitely planning on doing that. So uh, leave any of your questions, comments kind of in uh, the iTunes or Spotify ratings and reviews, and we'll make sure we get to those in a future episode. Uh, we uh, appreciate everybody listening. Uh, we hope you found uh, the information in the podcast in general helpful, and we hope everyone has a great rest of the week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local health care provider. Thank you.